We are never going to Florida. This was the dramatic exclamation from my son Eli as uh, he came running to us having read some terrifying facts from a book. Now, I've told you guys before about Eli's reading habits, how he loves to learn things from uh, academic literature, which is awesome. However, sometimes when he's reading this academic literature, it can cause him to jump to sweeping conclusions. At the time that Eli came and told us we're never going to Florida, we actually were preparing to go to Florida. And uh, we said, well, Eli, why... Why can we not go to Florida? And he said, because of sinkholes. And I'm like, okay, what does Florida have to do with sinkholes? And he he shows me his book, a a book by the Scholastic Company about, uh, of all things, sinkholes. Yes, he has an entire book about sinkholes. And this book had stories in it about sinkholes uh, that took place uh, in various places, one of them being Florida. In one such story, uh, there was a family in Tampa, Florida that experienced a tragedy in 2013. Uh, Jeff Bush was at home with his brother Jeremy um, in the house that they shared with a couple of other family members. And Jeremy was in the living room. Jeff uh, had already gone to bed. Out of nowhere, Jeremy heard his brother screaming for help, and then silence. And so he rushed to Jeff's room and opened the door and was greeted by an enormous hole in the floor. Retelling the story, Jeremy said, everything was gone. My brother's bed, my brother's dresser, my brother's TV, my brother was gone. The floor and the ground beneath the floor literally opened up and swallowed Jeff and the entire contents of his room. So Jeremy called for help and then frantically tried to dig through the rubble with a shovel until police arrived and and pulled him out, telling him that the sinkhole was still collapsing more and more, so it wasn't safe for him to be there. And not just him. For a number of days, rescuers could not set up equipment to try to find Jeff in the rubble because they themselves could be uh, victims as this sinkhole continued to spread. It was clear that it was not finished yet. And so setting up any rescue equipment would have jeopardized the lives of the, the emergency personnel. So, several days later, by the end of this ordeal, this hole measured 30 feet across and 30 feet deep. A hole that was big enough for the entire house to fall into and fit into several times over. Nearby houses uh, were also evacuated as a precaution. And, And thankfully, none of the other homes sank. But just like that, out of nowhere... A man was gone. And so, Eli explained to us, sinkholes are very common in Florida. So we can't go there. And I'm like, dude, did you know that Disney is in Florida? And he was like, what are we going to do? I hope there are no sinkholes 
under Disney World. And I'm like, well, I hope not, uh, but you know what, buddy, we're going to risk it. Um, As it turns out, he's correct that uh, sinkholes are common in Florida because, according to an article that I read in CNN, much of the state of Florida is on bedrock made of limestone. And this limestone can be eaten away by acidic groundwater. And that forms voids that collapse when the rock can no longer support the weight of what is above it, creating this, this hole in the ground. And the county where this family lived, the Bush family, Hillsborough County, is part of an area actually called Sinkhole Alley, which accounts for two-thirds of sinkhole-related insurance claims in the state of Florida. And so again, one minute Jeff Bush was there, the next moment he was not. His body was never found. In a literal second, a man was gone. And it didn't matter how solid the foundation was. It didn't matter how well the house was built. It didn't matter how many of their resources they had poured into building a nice life for themselves. Without a moment's warning, he was gone. We've been going through a series on the book of Ecclesiastes. And in this book, hold on, Siri is uh, talking to me now because I said series. (laughs) I should turn that off when I'm preaching. Stop. Uh, We've been going through a series on the book of Ecclesiastes, and um, the preacher, Solomon, has been uh, one by one deconstructing the methods that we use of finding meaning outside of God. And, And he's talked about a number of things. He's talked about things like work and accomplishments, and pleasure, and wisdom, and fun, and, uh, and, and all of the different things that we can try to pour ourselves into in order to try to be satisfied outside of God. And today, in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, the preacher is going to deconstruct for us yet another method of trying to find meaning outside of God, human relationships. So, uh, turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 4, and the words will be behind me on the screen. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. I thought, the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not yet seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is bubbles and a striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. Again, I saw bubbles under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is bubbles and an unhappy business. Two are better than one. Because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls 
and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who's alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is bubbles, and a striving after the wind. So, we're going to break down what exactly he's talking about here. And... um, I confess to you that uh, this has been a full week, and so I did not have the opportunity to prepare as long as I typically do. So the sermon might not be an hour long, as is usual for me. Um, And so if we don't go quite as deep as normal, uh, forgive me for that. Solomon here is deconstructing for us, like I said, another method of trying to find meaning outside of God. And that's the entire purpose of the book of Ecclesiastes. And when he talks about human relationships, what he points out in this passage is that as it pertains to the way that we try to find meaning in people, there are basically three primary ways in which we do that. Using people ignoring people, or venerating people. Using people, ignoring people, or venerating people. And what Solomon is going to tell us in this passage is that none of those three are correct. None of those three are healthy ways to relate to other people. We can find our meaning in none of those three options. Instead, what he's going to teach us is that we must first connect to God And then God can intertwine us in healthy connection with others. So very simply, here's what Solomon is going to teach us today. Using people as a means for gain is a sinkhole that sinks both the user and the used. Chasing after satisfaction in comparing yourself to others is also a sinkhole that sinks both the comparer and the compared. Ignoring other people and isolating yourself to be your own island is also a sinkhole that sinks you by yourself. And so, using others, comparing yourself to others, or ignoring others, all three of those, though they might seem like a good idea, Though they might seem like firm foundations, though they might seem like ways to gain for yourself, all are bubbles. So here's point number one. You can't ever take enough from people to be whole. You can't ever take enough from people to be whole. So, Solomon starts out by talking about oppression he notes that there are various ways in which some people take advantage of other people. And he doesn't list out exactly for us what types of oppression that that he's referring to, simply the fact that there are inequities in this world. There are people who are above others, and there are people who use their power to take from other people. 
Uh, This could be political, this could be social, this could be familial. This could be a various number of ways that those who have power use it for themselves to take advantage of people who are under them. Then in verse 4, he talks about jealousy, envy, uh, um, uh, and how that is also vanity. Now, it, it might seem like these things are disjointed, but they are truly actually connected. So, when he's talking about oppression in verse 1 and 2, he says, Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not yet seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. It's important for us to note that Solomon is not taking a side here. And it seems like he is, but he's not taking a side. He is not uh, unilaterally taking the side of the oppressed or defending the oppressor. He's not saying here that the oppressors have won. These are the people that won and they have the life that they want. That's, that's not what he's getting at. He's not, he's not pointing at oppression and saying, see, some people just get lucky. Some people have a, a hand that's dealt to them and they get to live the good life. That, that's not what he's doing. Because later on in the passage, he highlights for us the folly of putting possessions over people. So here he's just simply pointing out that there are people who use other people. They oppress others in one way or another. And he points out the fact that that is evil. That it's a tragedy that there are people who are used and they have no one to comfort them. But one of the other things that Solomon is pointing out for us here that may not seem as obvious is that there is no joy for the oppressor either. There's no joy for the oppressor or for the oppressed. There is no lasting hope under the sun whether you are the one who is the user or the used. In the end, both are broken. That's why Solomon says that the fortunate ones are the ones who haven't been born yet because they haven't witnessed the evil under the sun. So again, he is not saying that the lucky ones are the ones with power. The oppressors are the ones who are fortunate. They have the good life. He's not favoring them in any way. He's saying this is a tragedy that people use other people. And it's a tragedy that there is no lasting hope to be found under the sun. One of the things that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt because we have experienced it is what happens many times to people who have been oppressed, to people who have been hurt. Eventually, they hurt someone else. That's where we get the phrase, hurt people, hurt people. In far too many cases, oppression breeds oppression. Pain breeds pain. Hurt breeds hurt. And more and more people get caught up and trapped in this vicious cycle. And so one of the things that Solomon is doing is he is pointing our eyes upward. He's trying to point our eyes to the need for something beyond this world, beyond what is under the sun, to break this cycle. 
There, there was a commentator um, a long time ago named Franz de Litch, and he commented on this statement about death or non-existent being favorable to, to living under oppression. And he said, So long as the central point of man's existence lies in the present life, and this is not viewed as the forecourt of eternity, there is no enduring consolation to lift us above the miseries of this present world. If this life is all that there is, there is no hope for any of the oppression in this world. As long as this life is all that there is, there is no hope in being the oppressor or the oppressed. As long as this life, all that is under the sun, if this is all that there is, these broken systems cannot be fixed no matter what we do. People are still going to take advantage of other people. People are still going to use other people. People are still going to try to gain from other people. That's just the way it is. And there is no lasting hope to fix that unless there is eternity. Another commentator named Walter Kaiser said, Men can be as cruel and inhumane to each other in unnecessary competition as they can be in oppression. We compete with one another in various ways. And that's why the very next thing that Solomon talks about is envy and jealousy. Verse 4. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is bubbles and a striving after the wind. Now, at first glance, this verse seems to strike us as odd, right? Like, can it really be that all toil and all skill in work come from envy of our neighbor? Honestly, do any of us go to work and punch in and say to ourselves, I'm only doing this because I'm jealous of my next door neighbor? No. And that's not really what he's calling our attention to. What he's calling our attention to is driving insecurity, jealousy, envy, which we do have. Okay, We do struggle with jealousy. We do struggle with envy. We do struggle with driving insecurity. What I mean by driving insecurity is that there's insecurity that drives us forward Desperately seeking something to give us that security. And Solomon says that so much of what we do in life, so much of what we're trying to accomplish in life, is to gain security for ourselves. We're trying to grasp onto something that will give us hope. And what we see in other people, what we think they have, is the security that we want. And we look at various parts of other people's lives and we point to those things, whether it's the money that they have or the marriage that they have, the relationships with the community that they have, the influence, their power, whatever it might be. We look at the things that our neighbor has and we think they have security and happiness because they have that. So I have to go and earn that. I have to earn what they have so that I can be secure. That's jealousy. That's envy. And it's also crippling insecurity. For almost every single one of us, there are things in us that make us insecure. Many times that insecurity can come from or or be exacerbated by a painful experience. Someone being mean to us. Someone pointing out something about us. uh, Making fun of it. It's no accident that this verse directly follows verses about oppression. 
and, and, and using other people. So maybe there's something that we got made fun of or, or something that someone do to, does to hurt us. And, and it highlights some weakness in us that we perceive to have or, or, or some lack of something. And that insecurity then becomes a driving force in us for the rest of our lives. Um, I've shared this story a while back, uh, kind of a funny example of this. When I was in middle school, going into high school, um, I had a small group of friends at church. And um, one of them, not being mean or, or, or purposely um, awful to me, but just making a comment, she said, I notice your clothes never match. She pointed this out to me, and she was kind of chuckling to herself, and she's like, do you even know how to match your clothes? You never wear clothes that match. And I don't know what it was or why that comment stuck with me. But for years since, that comment has been a driving force in my life, okay? To where the pendulum completely swung in the other direction for a while. Okay, for a while after that, I only wore clothes of one color, okay? I, if, if I was wearing blue, everything was blue. If I was wearing green, everything was green. Because I was not going to be the kid whose clothes didn't match. Okay, I'd grown up poor, and so I didn't want to be made fun of for not being able to put together an outfit. And so for a while, the pendulum completely swung so far in the direction that I was so matchy-matchy that it looked ridiculous. And someone else made another comment saying, why do you only wear one color? And I'm like, where is the happy medium? How do I dress? To this day, okay, this is a true statement. To this day, when I am packing for a trip, Allison will attest to this, okay? I have in my closet a bunch of hats. Okay, I'm a hat guy. I love wearing a hat. I have like 20 different hats. So if I'm going on a five-day trip, I'll lay out five hats on the bed. These hats are different colors different combinations of colors, and I start with a hat. Then I go to my closet, and I grab a shirt, and I match it to each hat. So now I've got five hats, and I've got five shirts. Then I'll go, and I'll grab either shorts or pants and match them to the outfit, and then shoes that go along with it. So I start from the hat and go down to the shoes, and it's not all the same color. It's got some accents in there. It's got a little bit of a difference and then I take pictures of each of my outfits on my phone. And then when I'm packing, I put them all together in, in, in outfits so that when I unpack, I look at the pictures and I, I know exactly what I'm wearing each day. Okay, that seems neurotic and crazy, does it not? It all came from one comment when I was 13 years old from a girl who said, you have no idea how to match your clothes. I'm sure that many of us have experiences like that where we can look back at things and go, this particular situation gave me a complex that now drives me for the rest of my life. And that's a funny example, one to laugh at, but a lot of us struggle with very serious insecurities that, that come from similar situations. And so what we do to meet that insecurity is we try to look at somebody else who isn't that way? We, we look at somebody else and we go, okay, that's the ideal. And then we spend all of our energy trying to be like that image. 
And maybe it's a celebrity who dresses a certain way. Maybe it's someone who looks a certain way. Maybe it's someone who drives a certain car. Maybe it's someone who has a particular style or a way that they talk or, or whatever it might be. Whatever insecurity is in us, we look at somebody else and we idolize them and we say, I want what they have and I'm going to chase what they have so that I can be happy. But ironically, what we are doing in that is we are actually dehumanizing the people that we are idolizing. Because the people who have what we want are only valuable to us for what they possess. We're only seeing the piece of them that we want for ourselves. And so in doing so, we are spiritually becoming the oppressors that Solomon just talked about. Using people for our own gain. Being jealous and envious and working, striving towards gaining what they have. This also is bubbles. We also forget in this, by the way, in our, in our dehumanizing of our seemingly prettier, richer, happier, smarter, more well-liked and popular neighbor that they too are also battling the same crippling insecurity as we are. They also, in their own minds, are looking at other people and saying, I wish I had what they have. We think that they're happy because they have what we want. But what we don't know is that they also are looking at somebody else, wishing that they had what the other person has. And in some cases, maybe those two people are even looking at each other and saying, I wish what the other person had. Person A might be looking at person B and saying, gosh, they have so much money. They, they can have whatever they want. They can afford nice things. They, they can afford a nice, beautiful mansion and fill it with stuff and, and have a nice car. And, and look at me. I, I'm living paycheck to paycheck. I wish that I had what person A has because that would really make me happy. Meanwhile, unbeknownst to them, person B is looking at person A and saying, and look at their family. What beautiful children they have. They don't have extended family members who always mooch off of them and and just use them for what they have. They have genuine relationships and, and, and all this money can't buy what they have. I wish... I could be person B. Person A wants to be person B, and person B wants to be person A, and yet, even if the two switch places, still they would be unhappy. And that's why Solomon says that this is a striving after the wind. Striving after the wind is another way of saying, you are never going to win this battle. You're never going to reach the finish line, okay? The finish line keeps moving. Every time you step up to kick, they move the goalpost further and further away. If your hope is in a particular body goal, you won't ever be happy because there will always be someone else who you think has something better than what you have. If your insecurity is tied to possessions, you'll never possess enough things because there's always going to be someone else who has something that you can afford. If it's tied to intellect, you're never going to be smart enough. There's always going to be somebody else who is smarter. 
If it's tied to romance, then you're never going to be happy in who you have, and you'll always be wanting someone else. And so whatever it is that you're insecure in, whatever it is that you're chasing after, Solomon is saying, no matter what you think the finish line is, you're never going to get there. Because as soon as you arrive, it's already moved. It's chasing after the wind. And at the end of that striving, you'll have nothing but bubbles. You cannot try to find your hope in being like or having what you think someone else has. Verses 5 and 6 come next. And they almost seem like a completely random swerve into left field. Where, where Solomon decides he's just going to throw in some fun riddles uh, just for the heck of it. After talking about oppression and talking about jealousy and talking about envy, he says, The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. What, what, what's going on here? Solomon's not just throwing in fun random riddles because he feels like it. What he's doing is he's painting a picture of what he's just discussed. He's, he's using analogies. And he's also drawing a contrast between how people chase after their insecurity or they just give up. So, verse 5, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. So there are some people who have that insecurity and they drive after it constantly. They chase after it constantly. They never stop. In verse 5, he says that there are some people who, instead of being driven forward by their envy, being driven forward by their jealousy and their insecurity, they just give up completely. They say, what's the point of even trying? Okay, so in verse 4, you have the person who is always striving after the wind, always chasing, always trying to catch the elusive satisfaction. Here, Solomon says, is a person who takes the opposite approach, who says, I might as well just give up. And this person retreats inward. They shut the world out. Elsewhere in wisdom literature like Proverbs, whenever you see a phrase, the folding of the hands, typically that is a a, a word picture for laziness, right? Someone who folds their hands over their chest while they sleep. Take a nap, the sluggard. And he says, doing so causes you Only to consume yourself. Doing so causes you to just consume what limited resources you have. To only consume your own emotional resources. Isolating yourself away from everyone else. You eat yourself alive. Because you're not being filled by anyone else outside of yourself. You only have you. And you eat you up. And go deeper and deeper in a darkness. And so Solomon is putting this verse in a place where it might seem like it fits because he's wisely pointing out that in many cases, laziness and lack of drive is actually the symptom of a deeper pain caused by insecurity, caused by envy, caused by jealousy, repeated efforts of finding your hope in what someone else has and then never succeeding. And so you just give up completely. And you say, Why even try? That's why he says in verse 6, 
that contentment comes neither from having everything you think you want or from giving up completely. He says, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. So it's not, uh, your satisfaction doesn't come from having everything you want. Your satisfaction doesn't come from giving up completely. He says, a handful of quietness. And how many hands? One handful of quietness. Not two hands full of stuff and not completely empty hands folded over the chest doing nothing. You have one handful of quiet. So what's the other hand doing? The other hand is working. The other hand is doing what God commanded. What, what God designed us to be doing, which is to be active and doing good things in the world for the right reasons. And this hand can be doing those things without falling into either of the traps that he's just talked about. Always chasing or just giving up. Because the hand that you're holding close to your heart has peace that comes from above. We know that this is what he means because he's already spent three chapters talking about it. Finding your satisfaction in the giver rather than the gift. So your hands aren't frantically grasping, trying everything that you can do to just grab onto something to make you happy. And your hands aren't folded in defeat, giving up on ever being happy. You have a handful of quietness given to you as a gift by God, given to you to hold on to to keep you steady so that you can use your free hand to do beautiful things in this world for him. So looking at what other people have, looking at what other people do, and trying to get it for yourself is a sinkhole. It is a foundation that even though it might seem like it makes sense, and you can do everything you want to build onto it, in a moment it will collapse and be gone. Point number two, you can't achieve a life of meaning by yourself. You cannot achieve a life of meaning by yourself. Look now at verses 7 and 8. Again, I saw bubbles under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there's no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is bubbles and an unhappy business. So here, Solomon now turns his attention to people who say, I don't need anyone else. I can do everything on my own. I can gain everything I need by myself. I can get out of life everything that's satisfied without ever relying on another person. So he's just finished talking about people who use others, who try to latch onto other people to get what they want. Now he turns his attention to people who say, I don't need anybody. I am an island all to myself. And is it not true that we live in a country that highly values independence, right? We hear it preached all the time in the, the American ideal. If you want something done right, do it yourself. If you want something for yourself, you go and get it. You accomplish it. You pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And it's in every single Disney movie. You follow your heart. Follow the North Star in your heart. Garbage. 
But that's what we value in our country. We want to be strong, independent, self-made individuals who when we make it can say, I did it. I'm the one who earned this. It was all because of me. So now that Solomon has admonished those who connect to others to just get from them, you might be tempted to think, well, is Solomon then advocating doing things on your own? No. This is a lesson that we have been trying to teach our children from uh, 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 their youngest days. Eli and Marisol, can I ask you a question? Can you finish this sentence for me? People are more important than things. Thank you, Marisol. People are more important than things. Solomon here gives the example of someone who has no one else and yet is striving for stuff. Striving for riches and there's no end to their toil. Never satisfied with riches Never asking, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? So he's pointing at people who say, I'm just going to gain for me. It is for me. It is by me. It is because of me. Now here's the thing. There are very few people, some, sure, but there are very few people who start out from the beginning putting things over people. Typically, They get that way because they've been hurt by people or let down enough times that they say, forget people. What's going to make me happy is accomplishing my own stuff, gaining my own stuff, getting the things that I want. And I'm sure that many of us have experienced this. What happens when you get hurt? Aren't you tempted to shut people out completely? in order to protect yourself from further hurt? Aren't you tempted to say, you know what, I'll just seek after the things in life that will make me happy, and I won't let anyone else hurt me, and I'll be just fine. And so you build walls around your heart so that no one gets in. And you fill your time with whatever pursuit you think is a good and valuable one. And Solomon says that if you do that, you will be toiling And you will be depriving yourself of pleasure. And you might build up a huge pile of stuff. But for what? For whom? Are you just going to sit on a big pile of money all by yourself? He specifically points out the lack of peace that this person has. Let me read it again. Again, I saw bubbles under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother. Yet... There is no end to all his toil. His eyes are never satisfied with riches. He never asks, who am I working for? And depriving myself of pleasure, this also is bubbles and an unhappy business. So he specifically points out the lack of happiness, the lack of peace, the lack of rest that this person has. They never stop working. They never stop striving. They keep themselves as busy as possible so that they won't ever have to stop and think. Or, more rather, they never have to stop and feel. But no matter what they get, it's never enough. 
They keep chasing the satisfaction of something that they can't hold on to. And Solomon says, you're chasing after bubbles. You can't catch and grasp the bubbles. If you close your heart to people, your heart won't be protected from harm. It will just be locked in a lonely prison. You are not keeping yourself safe. You're keeping yourself enslaved. Uh, Earlier today, my family was watching Home Alone 2. Um, They wanted to sit on the couch and watch Christmas movies. And so they started the movie and I started uh, to get them movie snacks. And so I was the, uh, the theater butler if you will. I was making them popcorn, making them sandwiches, making them drinks, all, all this stuff. And they were watching this movie, and then I sat down on the couch, and I was finishing typing out, typing out my sermon. I had my headphones in, and I was largely just ignoring the movie. Well, there came a part in this movie towards the end, and I'm sure you guys have seen Home Alone 2, where, where Kevin is talking to the bird lady. And the bird lady tells him, this is the first time she's talked to someone in years. She explains that she had her heart broken by a man that she loved. And so when she had the chance to love again, she ran. And ever since that point, she avoids people. She keeps to herself. She only is with the birds. And Kevin looks at her with a wisdom of a nine-year-old and says, that kind of sounds like a dumb idea. And he tells her that he once received a pair of roller skates as a gift. But he didn't want to get them messed up. And so he only wore them once. He kept them in a box so that he wouldn't scratch them or ruin them. And he kept them in his room. But in doing so, he outgrew them. And then he never used them and lost any use of them whatsoever. And so the bird lady's like, well... Your heart and your feelings are, are not really the same as roller skates. And, and Kevin's like, well, they're kind of the same thing. If you don't take a chance and learn to trust, they'll go to waste. Then the bird lady follows up with some garbage advice about following the North Star in your heart and garbage like that. But what Kevin says, the nine-year-old actually is the one with the wisdom in this situation to say... If you lock your heart away, you are guaranteeing yourself nothing but a life of loneliness and pain. And so Solomon is clearly saying that trusting in yourself, trying to do life alone without truly connecting with others, is a sinkhole. It might seem like a great idea, and you can build the nicest fortress with the best walls, and you can fortify your castle with a moat, and you can fill your castle with all the trappings of the world, but at some point, the floor is going to give out, and everything will fall into the sinkhole of the earth. Bubbles, bubbles, all is bubbles. Point number three. You can't find peace in another person. So, point number one, he says you can't try to use people for gain. Point number two, he says you can't ignore people. Now he says you can't find your peace in people. Look at at verses 13 through 16. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. 
for he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is bubbles and a striving after the wind. So, commentators debate uh, uh, on this passage whether or not this is an actual real-life situation that Solomon is referring to. They've looked at various monarchies throughout the history of Israel and, and looked at, okay, which kings ascended from poverty to the throne or from prison to the throne and, you know, trying to put those pieces together to pinpoint which particular king is he talking about here. And, and while that's okay to do, it's not really the point. Whether or not Solomon is talking about a real-life person it isn't really the point of the passage. There's a clear point that Solomon is making in here, and that is that veneration only lasts a short amount of time. Veneration means to put someone on a pedestal, to worship someone. This king, whomever he was, is a rags-to-riches story. Started from the bottom, now he's here. That's what's going on. And he didn't do things the wrong way either. Solomon points out that he did it the right way. He uses wisdom to ascend to the throne from his lowly place. And, and there's this old foolish king who doesn't take advice any longer. He's gotten too important for counsel. He's too big for his britches. He won't heed any warning signs. And so he loses his throne to the underdog. All right? Aladdin the wise becomes the sultan. And the people loved him. The kingdom grew. He had a glorious reign. He had the worship of all his subjects. Everything was awesome. But then what happened? At some point, the glorious reign ended. And after that, no one cared. Nothing gained. Those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely, this also is bubbles, striving after the wind. So he's pointed out the bubbles in exploiting people and envying people. He's pointed out the bubbles in acting like you'll be better off alone. Now he points out the bubbles in venerating people, worshiping them, treating them like they are a god. No matter how good they are, even if they're wise, even if they're good, even if they seem trustworthy, they're human. And humanity is flawed. It is frail. It is limited. People cannot satisfy. People will let you down. And even if they didn't, they can't do anything beyond their 70 years under the sun. And neither can you. Bubbles. Now, you might be thinking, I don't worship anyone. I don't idolize anyone. I don't treat anyone like a god. Or perhaps you have. People who are single, who all they think about is being married. They are idolizing their future spouse. They're thinking, I will be happy when I have my other half. 
Maybe you are married and you currently are idolizing your spouse. You're putting all of the pressure of your satisfaction in life on them. You're saying, this is the person who will make me happy. This is the person who will satisfy me. This is my other half. I finally found my other half and they complete me. That's idolizing your spouse. Maybe you feel the opposite. You're married and you wish you weren't married to that person. You wish that they were someone different or or like someone different. That is, idolizing whomever the different is. Maybe you're following someone on social media or or following some celebrity and you're you're trying to fashion your life after theirs. There's a, a myriad of situations that this could be true, but any time we act as though our happiness depends on another person, Anytime we put the pressure of our satisfaction on someone else, anytime we live as though someone else is going to uh, give us our, our hopes and our dreams and they won't hurt us and they won't let us down, that is worship. Raise your hand if you have ever had someone you love let you down or hurt you. Raise your hand if you have ever been the one to do the hurting. Of someone you love. It's all of us. Trying to find your satisfaction in another person, whoever they are, is a guarantee for failure. Solomon says that it's it's bubbles, it's striving after the wind, it's it's a sinkhole. You can have the greatest relationships with the greatest people. You can build your life and all your hope on family, on your, on your spouse, your kids. You can put all your hope in, in, in your little family unit. But at some point, in some way, shape, or form, the floor caves in and you realize these people cannot save you. So where does this leave us? Can't use people. You can't be envious of people. You can't ignore people, but you also can't rely on people. So what, what options do we have left? Where can we go where there are no sinkholes? Verses 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they can keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. So here's our final point. You need relationships wrapped around a third cord. You might call this divine intertwining. Solomon very clearly tells us that we are not designed to be alone. On the other hand, we're also not designed to idolize relationships. We are designed for Christ-centered community. We're designed to be a part of a corporate body of people who are joined together in Jesus Christ. So here in these verses, Solomon gives us four analogies that demonstrate the need for partnership. Working together to accomplish more, helping when another person falls, keeping each other warm in the cold, and standing against an enemy together. 
But after he gives these four examples where he talks about partnership, he ends the section in kind of an unexpected way. He doesn't say a twofold cord is quickly broken, is not quickly broken. He actually says a threefold cord is not quickly broken. He starts out by saying two are better than one. One can help another do this. One can help another do that. One can help another do this. But then he says the threefold cord is not quickly broken. And so he is making the clear point that in the middle of the partnership between people, there is a third strand. There is a third cord. And it is from that strand that we derive our strength. We are neither each other's source of salvation nor each other's main source of brokenness. We have the ability to help or to hurt, but not to save or condemn. Eternal power in relationships only comes from the third strand. Solomon has deconstructed for us the folly of putting human relationships on a pedestal. In a number of ways. Described the bubbles of trying to find our satisfaction in other people. But that is not saying that we just don't need anybody else. He's saying we don't merely need each other. We need each other in the right way. We need each other. That much is true. We are definitely not designed to go it alone. We're not designed to be lone rangers who are independent agents needing no one else. We constantly, constantly need other people. But we also can't put all of our hope on those people. So once again, our hope is in the giver, not in the gift. And when our hope is in the giver, we can support one another on, these, on this eternal journey in the way that we were designed to do. Without Jesus, this world would be hopeless. There, there's, there's nothing that we can offer each other that will take us beyond what happens under the sun. And we are guaranteed to let each other down and hurt one another. But when we're bound together in Christ, when, when he is the strand of strength that ties us together... There's nothing that we cannot face. That's one of the reasons that Solomon gives us the four analogies that he gives us. Toil, falling, cold, and oppression. Life is filled with hard work, toil, hard things that we need to accomplish. And we need other people to be alongside us. But specifically, we need people with eternal perspective to encourage us. People with eternal perspective who can work by our side, accomplishing more for the kingdom than we could ever accomplish by ourselves. That third cord fills our toil with purpose. The third cord ensures that what we do here will outlast our 70 years under the sun. The third cord keeps us from pointless pursuit. It's a guarantee, next, that even the people who are closest to us are going to fall. A guarantee that every single one of us is going to fall. And sometimes, the ways in which we fall are incredibly hurtful and damaging. Without a third cord, those falls could tear us apart. 
Without the third chord, we decide that we are much better off on our own. Without the third chord, our pain would be too much. But by wrapping ourselves around the third chord, we can lift each other up. We can have eternal perspective. We can, we can have hope even through the worst ways that our loved ones hurt us or we hurt them because there's a cord of hope that never breaks, never falters, never withers, never fails. So we can look at each other and say, you fall and I fall. Let's wrap ourselves around this cord and we'll be okay. Life is also filled with pain It's a cold world. Through no control of our own sometimes, we're going to be in seasons that blast us with ice and wind. Winter. And winter means death. The leaves have fallen, the plants die, the sun doesn't shine as long. There's clouds and snow and gloom. Times when it seems like spring is never going to come. And in those moments... We hold each other tightly and keep each other warm. Not because of our own strength, but because we are drawing upon an eternal warmth that knows no winter. And that eternal strength is always spring and summer. That eternal warmth has been put in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And when two hearts that have that eternal warmth embrace, they can keep each other warm in even the coldest night. Life is also filled with attacks. Spiritual attacks. Personal attacks. Solomon has already talked about the ways that people oppress each other, use each other, dehumanize each other, sin against one another, ignore each other completely, or or isolate them. But if you have a community in the midst of those times, you will win. Specifically, a community of people who can remind you who you are in Jesus. A community who can encourage you with eternal truth. Help you set your eyes on the things that are real, that you need to focus on. A community of people who will tell you what you need to hear, even if it's not what you want to hear. And the reason the community can do that is because of the third chord. Without the third chord, it will just be nothing but platitudes and pithy statements and Pinterest sayings. Follow the North Star in your heart. Believe the magic within you. You are enough. Bubbles, bubbles, bubbles. The third chord gives you the way to win the battle against enemy, any enemy who comes your way. But woe to him who is alone when he falls. Woe to him who tries to work himself. Woe to him who has no one to keep him warm. Woe to him who has no battle buddies. Woe to him who does not have the third cord. You cannot do this alone. You need Jesus and you need the church. Without Jesus and the church, you will keep running from one place to another, thinking you're in a safe house until the floor opens up with another sinkhole. Every relationship or every lack of one will let you down. Only the third cord 
and the relationships that are tied with you around that third cord will make the difference between bubbles and lasting beauty. Are you willing to give yourself to the Lord and give yourself to each other and wrap around the third cord? That is the only way in which human relationships can function in the way that they were designed by God. As a gift, not to be found, not to to find our satisfaction in, because our satisfaction is in Him, but to be enjoyed and to be used for healthy purposes. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you are the third cord, that you are the strand of hope and eternal peace that we wrap ourselves around. God, I pray that we would not use each other. God, that we would not be jealous and envious of each other, that that our insecurities would not drive us. God, I pray that we would not isolate ourselves, thinking that we need no one else, that that we wouldn't put walls around our hearts, blocking you and, and everyone else out. God, I I pray that we wouldn't venerate other people. Lord, I pray that you would bring us into deep, Christ-centered community, into relationships that are tied around you, where we can work together and encourage each other and fight back-to-back against the enemies and keep each other warm because we have the eternal hope that only comes from you. God, I pray that each one of us would examine those things in our hearts those ways that, that, that we have failed to treat other people in this proper way. God, I pray especially for anyone who might be watching right now or, or listening who has never wrapped their life around you. God, I pray that if there's anyone who is listening who's never come to that place of surrender where, where it's more than just an acknowledgement of, of the mind, but a decision to consciously wrap their life and their hope and their peace all around you. God, if there's anyone who is like that right now, God, I pray that you would call them to yourself today. That you would call them to lay down their control and give it to you. That you would call them to decide to wrap around you. God, I pray for all of the people in our church. Lord, so many are watching from their homes so many people right now in, in our community, in the after church, are, are in their living rooms or, or in their car or, or watching on their laptop or their television. And God, I pray that even though we are distant right now today because of all that's happening in the world, I pray that you would tie us tighter. I pray that you would unite us more. God, I pray that you would bring us back together physically. I, I, I pray that we would wrap around each other and around you more than we ever have. That, that our church would be filled with a unity in Jesus that drives us forward and brings more in. God, that we would love these relationships that we have with each other and give ourselves completely to them. Trusting in you and trusting in one another to do the things that a community should do. God, I pray as we sing our closing song that it would consider our relationship to you and to one another, and that we would surrender in any way that we need to. For all of this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, you can stand.